Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since the realm of England was first a realm, was there never in it so great a robber and pillager of the Commonwealth, read nor heard of, as is our king. I saw a royal throne, whereas that justice should have sit, instead of whom I saw with fierce a cruel mood, where wrong was sat, that bloody beast that drank the guiltless blood. A most invincible king, whose acquirements and qualities are so many and excellent that I consider him to excel all who ever wore a crown. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 210. Bloody beast that drunk the guiltless blood. Who were, Mrs. So the time has come, as the walrus said, the time has come to add one to seven and come up with eight. Introducing King of England... Holder of the International Award of the Most Famous English Monarch, give it up for Henry VIII. There is a very real danger that I will start oversharing at this point. After all, you have downloaded this podcast to listen to history, not to hear me splashing my tears all over you. And yet I need to share. I need to share some emotions, and they must be shared. I started researching Henry many months ago with a feeling of sort of mm, bored panic. The world is awash with histories and films and pictures and blogs and discussions and TV series and probably many other forms of media which haven't been invented about Henry VIII. Seriously, what is there new to say about the chap? Do we really have to talk about him? Hasn't everyone else had enough of them too? Maybe I should just skip the Tudors and mm, move straight on to the Stuarts. 
I was also a little impatient of all this obsession with the bloke too. Why aren't people as interested in Alfred the Great, an incomparably more impressive man, for example, than our Henry VIII? Or even Richard I, one of my personal favourites. Where are all the TV series about Oliver Crom? So that was the board bit. And then the panic. People love the Tudors so. If you're English, there's a fair chance you'll have done quite a lot about them at school. People get really immersed in the Tudors, and this appears to be a reasonably global phenomenon. I confidently expect to be corrected many times over the coming weeks and months when I get something wrong, or maybe present an unpopular viewpoint. My shoulders were bowed with the weight of expectation. My brow was furrowed, ladies and gentlemen, with the worry of it all. In the light of this, I could not be more delighted to say that my mojo is fully restored. I'm still a bit worried. There is so much to read. But I have come to a renewed understanding of just why everyone is so interested in Henry, his reign and his times. I have understood just why there is so much written about the period. And although I expect to put my foot firmly in the mire from time to time, I shall welcome debate. There are so many reasons why Henry's reign is so horribly fascinating. One of them is that so far talking about people and personalities has been a bit like looking through a pair of binoculars that are out of focus. You can sort of see an outline, you can sort of describe what's there, but the image is fuzzy, it's a bit distorted, one-dimensional, and you can't really give any detail or colour. With the Tudors, suddenly everything seems to come into sharper focus. Records and information are much more common now than they've been, and critically, personal accounts survive. I remember a prof at university remarking that the problem for medievalists is to find enough evidence to support a particular viewpoint. The problem with early modern and modern history is that you can never get through all the evidence. Suddenly, we now have a real chance of describing people and their characteristics as far as you can ever do such thing, understanding what made them tick. It's not just that you can do this about Henry himself, though I'll get on to that. It's also that suddenly we can talk about a much wider range of men and women than before, though of course it's still relatively limited to the rich and famous, but actually even the voice of the people is beginning to be heard, though sotto voce. We can now describe the sort of lives they lived day to day with much more confidence. And the factionalism and lives and loves, triumphs and disasters of the factions around Henry at court are a timeless dance of death and intrigue and gossip. And all the players on the stage of Henry VIII's stage What an incredible collection of people to talk about. It makes me weep for what I know we miss about previous ages of English history, the people we just can't describe, whose real character, rather than simply some of their actions, we just can't properly elucidate. So, in front of our eyes will pass Thomas Wolsey, a butcher's son, who rose to become the arbiter of English politics, who engorged himself on all the magnificence the English church and state could bring him, hated and feared by the nobility he commanded, and a symbol of the worst aspects of corruption and venality in the church. And yet, who as Chancellor delivered an equality of justice for all classes of people never previously paralleled. The subtle character of Thomas More, his hideously patronising sense of humour, his enormously attractive humanity and impressive learning and genius, his heroic death and the controversy that surrounds the legend that grew up around him, the heroic and tragic figure of Catherine of Aragon, the genius of Thomas Cromwell, the courage and intelligence of Anne Boleyn, the pathos of Catherine Howard and the grim way that fate and history had treated her. I could warble on for ages, but really no novel, no play, no work of fiction could wish for more. It's not surprising there is such a cascade of historical fiction set in this world. It's just such peerless material to work with. And of course, there are all those cod pieces. 
Talking of cod pieces, there's then the figure and character of the king himself. I started the episode with those three quotes to give you some idea of the contemporary opinion of Henry. The first two are from people that were executed by him. The first, a priest called Thomas Hale. The second, the Earl of Surrey, who was executed for treason, and therefore, unsurprisingly, not that positive. The last is from an ambassador at the court in the early years, thoroughly excited at the prospect of this new king. We'll come back to the character of the king, but love him or loathe him, he's an absolutely commanding figure, sometimes fascinating simply because of the horror of the things he does, sometimes because of the allure of the propaganda that has survived all this time of his larger-than-life grandeur and magnificence, the pure pageantry of his court. At this point, it is impossible not to talk about that picture. Yep, you know the one, the one by Holbein, which itself is worth an entire podcast episode. Reams and reams of material has been written about it. Art historian, I am not. Subtle understanding of art, I do not possess. But even in my ignorance, I can appreciate that Holbein was a blessed genius. If Henry VIII did nothing else but bring Holbein to his court and let us see real portraits of real people that display something of their character before us, he would be nonetheless worthy of praise. Because it's not just Henry's portrait we have available, there are many others. Thomas More included, and the portrait of Thomas Cromwell. Seriously, I could weep with the genius of it. Painters of the ages must have looked at it, taken up painting and decorating instead in despair. I have posted Henry's portrait on the website, but of course, it's all over the place on the interweb. Can't miss it, gov. Actually, the history of the painting is a bit complicated. Only a cartoon preparation drawing survives of the original. The ones we know are copies but it is enough to understand the genius of it. There he stands in all his glory, magnificently dressed in clothes that cost more than an entire village would earn in a year. A big man, legs thrust confidently apart, small piggy eyes staring out at you balefully. What are you looking at, loser? The painting was made in 1537 when Henry was in his forties and probably already getting pretty tubby and having problems with an ulcerous leg. But this is propaganda. Henry had learned well from his father that a king must project his power and magnificence. The errors of their namesake, Henry VI, to be seen wandering around the streets of London in homespun were never to be repeated by the Tudors. Holbein created the picture to be seen a few inches above your head so that the impact would be even stronger, the projection of power, confidence, authority, command. This was Henry as he wanted to be seen, And this is the picture, actually, that best represents how most people would have seen or imagined him. So back to those three quotes, neither of the first two would have reflected how the vast majority of contemporaries saw him. Henry was never a cipher, never to be ignored, and most of his people revered him. So, I had better stop warbling and get on with the real purpose of the episode, which is not to communicate my Damascene conversion but to give you a background and feel to the way that history has treated our Henry, the historiography of the reign, and to lay out some of the controversies for us to prepare for. And I have to say that if there is anything that demonstrates the richness of his reign, it's the richness of the debate and the breadth of opinions amongst historians about the character of Henry, his motivations, and the extraordinary impact of his reign, for they are legion. It is traditional for us to start with our lodestones, 1066 and all that, and the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England. Sadly, I have come to the end of my copy of the Ladybird book, Volume 1. So, 1066 and all that will have to suffice. 
Here we go with a couple of snippets. Henry VIII was a strong king with a very strong sense of humour and eight wives, memorable among whom were Catherine the Arrogant, Anne of Cloves, Lady Jane Austen and Anne Hathaway. His beard, however, was red. One of the strongest things that Henry VIII did was about the monasteries. It was pointed out to him that no one in the monasteries was married, as all the monks thought it was still the Middle Ages. So Henry, who of course considered marrying a good thing, told Cromwell to pass a very strong act, saying that the Middle Ages were over and the monasteries were all to be dissolved. It's probably not the most subtle and nuanced of analyses of the reign, though it's interesting to see Salah and Yeatman indulging in a light touch of gingerism, which is distressing. The Middle Ages thing, of course, is poking a bit of fun at our love of pigeonholing, but it's actually deeply ironic that Henry's reign is often considered as a critical watershed between the medieval world and the early modern, far more than his dad Henry VII. But when Henry VIII came to the throne, his ambitions and mindset were deeply, deeply medieval. His youthful passion was to emulate his hero Henry V. He would win honour and glory as the best of any medieval king. He would win back his rights in France. He would stoutly defend the church and the Catholic religion. The thought of him presiding over some of the most fundamental changes in English history would have made him pause in the lists before couching his lance and setting off to beat seven bells out of one of his noblemen. To pick up another theme, Henry VII was a strong king. Such an evaluation is debated in modern times. Was Henry actually a vacillator? Was he manipulated? But at the time, contemporaries would have had no question. Whether or not he could be manipulated, he was the very epitome of all that a king should be. And this image was quickly taken up by historians of the time. The contemporary historian Edward Hall was utterly convinced of Henry's greatness, while utterly despising his minister Wolsey. The Chronicles of Hollingshed picked up the theme, and of course the Bloody Bard's play Henry VIII celebrated the king's magnificence and glory. Henry's personal aura cast a long shadow over the whole Tudor period. On the death of his son Edward VI, the claim to the throne was disputed by Lady Jane Grey and his daughter Mary, and Grey had a decent claim to the throne in fact. But even in her heartlands, Grey's supporters deserted her because Mary was the daughter of the great man himself and her succession had been his wish. When Mary herself was queen, the first queen of England of course, she found councillors sometimes unwilling to take orders from a mere woman. She declared that she only wished her father might come to life again for a month. She knew and her contemporaries knew there would be no argument with the man himself in the saddle but the fun really starts in the 20th century. There are many themes, some of which we'll look at here, and we'll look at these first before moving on to the character of the king. One of the most famous and radical historians of the period was G.R. Elton, a historian who came to England as a boy on the eve of the Second World War, became a naturalised Englishman and a prof at Cambridge University. Elton had inherited a view of Tudor history that was dominated by one A.F. Pollard, who held an exalted view of Henry VIII and who viewed Thomas Cromwell as a mere functionary, a mouthpiece of the king. Into this world, in 1953, came Elton's book, The Tudor Revolution in Government. Elton argued that in fact it was Cromwell who systematically and knowingly worked a revolution in government, that he created institutions to engineer and manage the dissolution of the monasteries and the break from Rome, and that by so doing, 
he created a modern bureaucratic state while carefully tying Parliament into all the innovations of the reign. There are few historians who can claim to have set the parameters of debate for 50 years, but this is exactly what Elton achieved. Nice one, Jeff. Of course, nothing lasts forever, and it was Elton's babies that have nibbled away at his thesis, if I can make so bold as to call David Starkey, David McCulloch and John Guy Elton's babies. Or indeed, think of them nibbling. I sincerely hope they never listen to this podcast. Pretty confident they won't, to be honest. Anyway, it's a big concept to swallow that one man, Cromwell, could have been quite so far-sighted and effective as to engineer such a change. Elton was a traditional historian. He had little truck for other social sciences getting mixed up in history, or the idea that we're all at the mercy of larger economic and social forces that drive us all. It was all about personalities, people and politics for him. David Starkey, a most engaging historian if ever I've heard one, emphasised faction within Henry's court as a driver of change as much as individuals. He argued that actually the most significant change came in the structure of the court from two to three departments, something we've covered under Henry VII. That within the king's household and chamber, it was faction and personal relationships and networks that drove policy and government. And far from impersonal organs of state driving decision-making, it was the royal household that remained central. Meanwhile, John Guy, amongst other historians of the Yorkist period, argued that actually you had to go back further to see the development of the real primacy of the household. Have to go all the way back to Edward IV. And a continuing debate is whether the real revolution in government was actually carried out under the Yorkist kings. And the Tudors just carried it on and developed it. A favourite theme of modern historians, it seems to me, to emphasise continuity rather than revolution. E.W. Ives took this a bit further, and he argued that informal relationships, patronage and networks formed the wider basis for government, not just in court, but also in the country. And all this focus on faction rather than administration is of course a lot more fun, though not so good for a Cromwell's exalted reputation. The study of networks and patronage reflects another theme. What happened to the nobility during the period? The thesis became then that the new reign saw an erosion of the traditional networks and affinities of the medieval world as the court became more and more the centre and source of patronage. That this also eroded the power and influence of the nobility as the king's government established a direct relationship with the gentry classes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That is basically that the gentry began to see the crown as the source of all wealth and success. Becoming a justice of the peace, for example, was a great way to build your influence in your local county. And so they no longer needed the magnates for themselves to succeed. Thus government becomes more centralised. The traditional peerage is marginalised. Now, that of course is disputed. Alternatively, maybe it's simply that the nobility themselves adapt. They stop building up all these local affinities as a waste of the folding stuff. They too focus on the court. After all, 
Their numbers stay pretty stable, they don't decline. It's just now, rather than their power being based on that old military service concept, they are now tied into the court and bureaucratic service instead. So there's debate number one. How far was government revolutionised in Henry's reign, and was this Cromwell or simply a continuation of the process already started? How far can we describe government at the end of the reign as being driven by modern, impersonal organs of state? Was there, in effect, a revolution in government as Elton claimed? Another big theme, of course, is the good old, honest-to-goodness, Reformation. And good lord, the transformation in the 20th century here has been quite extraordinary. Basically, from the days of Elizabeth I, the Reformation and Protestantism became an increasingly central part of English identity. To your Whiggish historians, this is a linear thing. The story is this, that the old church was corrupt, that the English saw it to be so, that while the Reformation was driven by the king, it reflected a bottom-up demand for change that willingly and enthusiastically embraced the new religion, a demand that had started with the work of John Wycliffe 150 years before and taken up by the pre-Reformation community of the Lollards. OK, there were a few die-hard Catholics, as evidenced by the pilgrimage of grace, but that's basically the story. This is essentially a positive story. Historians such as A.G. Dickens saw the Reformation as primarily theological. To quote, In England as elsewhere, the Protestant Reformation sought first and foremost to establish gospel Christianity, to maintain the authority of the New Testament over mere church traditions and human inventions. Elton's interpretation was more political, as you might expect, The Reformation was part of the growth of the modern nation-state, but essentially the Reformation is still positive. It's a cleansing, an adoption of a more reason-based and textually-based religion, speaking directly to the people through the English language, and even tying in development of a nation free from the tyrannies of church dogma and a wider personal and political liberty. And then into this debate came one Eamon Duffy and other revisionists such as Christopher Hay and Jack Scarisbrook. They looked in detail at what the state of the medieval church really was at the time. They looked at the details of church wardens' accounts, they looked at popular practice, and they concluded really rather convincingly that actually there was no great upswell of discontent with the church. They argued very convincingly that actually on a local level the medieval church was a vibrant and rich part of people's lives that continued to drive the daily and annual cycle of life. They noted that church building was picking up, that while there may have been some bad priests, that's inevitable in such a large organisation, and steps were being taken to improve education of the clergy. Unlike the traditionalists, the language of the revisionists about the Reformation is almost entirely negative. The Reformation is destructive, it shattered a meaningful, beautiful and vibrant religious consensus. The viewpoint is not of the reformers' vision, ideology, or the new society and religion they hope to form. It's seen from the viewpoint of the traditional religion. They paint a picture of lives ruined, beautiful churches despoiled and whitewashed. E.W. Ives also makes a damning judgment when he wrote that Henry's actions brought no spiritual benefits to the country. That really is quite a bold statement. Not much room for nuance there, then. The Reformation, they argue was entirely driven by the king. These are not bottom-up at all. They are top-down, 
driven by the King's personal agenda and a few Protestant zealots around him like Cromwell. Now, it has to be said you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody these days who doesn't accept the basic thesis that Duffy so brilliantly developed. The transformation of the historical viewpoint is completely and utterly reversed. From a cast-iron view in the 50s that the Reformation was a good thing, part of England's march to greatness, and I have to say very much part of my education at school in the 70s, to the 80s and more recently, where the basic thesis at least of Duffy's vision has absolutely won the day. There are few turnarounds in historical debate quite so dramatic. There is, of course, as there is revisionism, there is counter-revisionism. Before I go into that, if I can be allowed a personal reflection, religion is a pretty powerful topic. To declare my own interests, I am basically not a religious person, I don't go to church, and yet, and yet, I was brought up in the Church of England, some kind of God is never far away, and I have been steeped in the English myth of Protestantism as part of the English nation and character. And I have a sneaking admiration for the Anglican Church, which appears to want to be reasonable, move with the times, however hard and slow it might be sometimes. So by golly, it's hard to be objective. And it seems hard to ignore the very obvious absurdities of the medieval Catholic Church, 22 foreskins of Jesus, to cite a possibly trivial example. So be careful, listeners all. I am potentially biased, though I do my very best. So, to come back to it, as you might expect, there is a counter-revisionism, including one Diarmid McCulloch of Cambridge University, another really accessible and authoritative historian if you come across him. Counter-revisionism argues that it is impossible to ignore that there were many regions of England that did indeed very swiftly adopt Protestantism, which must reflect a pre-existing level of support. They point out that Duffy tends to ignore or dismiss regions which show such reformist zeal and concentrate on those that were more traditional. It has to be said in the words of Ballou, there's more, much more, which we'll come to when we come to it, otherwise I'll end up delivering another entire episode here. But there's the debate. Was the Reformation just about the king and a few personalities? Was it entirely top-down? Or did it also reflect a desire for change on behalf of the English people? Which brings us, as night follows day, to Henry's character and the impact of his reign. As well as making assessments of the man and impact, much of the debate has been about whether it was the king himself in the driving seat and making decisions, or his ministers. As a young man particularly, Henry was very much one for the hunt and impatient of spending a lot of time on matters of state. He even whined at one stage that writing was really tiresome and hard work. So does this mean that the country was run by Wolsey, for example, and Cromwell? Or did they simply execute the king's will express before he hopped on a horse and went to murder some poor beasts? And then, what was Henry's achievement over the 36 years of his reign, What were the motivations that drove him in his decisions? Was he genuinely a religious reformer, or, once he had inadvertently released the reformist genie from the bottle, did he spend much of the rest of his reign trying to shove the thing back in and stick a cork in it? One of the striking things about contemporary comment was the difference between Henry of the early days and the later days. The three quotes I started with make the same point. You have to go to the early days of the reign to get that really positive view. One of the theories is that he had a bad fall in 1524 while jousting and was unconscious for a couple of hours. Some have suggested that might have affected his personality. Others point to 1536, when again he was injured and afterwards could no longer joust. Herbert of Cherbury, writing in the reign of Charles I, 
presented a largely positive view of Henry's reign. But when it came to the man himself, he emphasised Henry's paranoia. Quote, Impressions privately given him by any court whisperer were hardly or never effaced. The 17th and 18th century debate focused particularly on Henry's motives in breaking with Rome and dissolving the monasteries, especially at the time of the Catholic Relief Acts of 1791. And by this time, Catholics were representing the Reformation as a wrong to be righted. In response, the argument went something like, yes, Henry the man was defective and had his faults, but through him, God's will had been done. The 19th century saw conflicting interpretations, and just like today, maybe it depended on where you started, as Catholic or Protestant. There was, of course, a strong movement of what you might call high church Anglicanism, seeking to heal the rifts of the past. Such commentators emphasised Henry's capriciousness and the violence of his actions. Here's a historian and poet called R.W. Dixon. A man of force without grandeur, of great ability, but not of lofty intellect, punctilious yet unscrupulous, centred in himself greedy and profuse, cunning rather than sagacious, of fearful passion and intolerable pride, but destitute of ambition in the nobler sense of the word, a character of degraded magnificence. Even William Cobbett, no Catholic himself, wrote, It was not a reformation, but a devastation of England. But the Whig line was nonetheless the dominant theme through the 19th century. For J.A. Froude, Henry was a hero, a statesman of destiny, who led his people out of medieval darkness towards their destiny as a leading nation of the world. S.R. Gardiner equally saw Henry as distinctive. He emphasised that unlike many continental monarchs, Henry had no standing army to enforce his power, and that he had an ability to take public opinion with him, and that he represented that public opinion. Now, that might sound a little bit daft, but if there is one common trait of the Tudors, especially Henry VIII and his children, they really knew how to wow the public. And to an extent, Henry VIII set the tone. All this display and magnificence of his was deeply impressive. But they had the common touch as well. The common touch that made a connection with the people of England. Maybe it was cynical, maybe not, but it's difficult to deny the public adulation they attracted. Into the first half of the 20th century, A.F. Pollard was Henry's great advocate. He argued that Henry's reign and reforms took England down a path to democracy and a greater role in the world, who enabled English liberty by throwing off the popish governess. In this we should note that, intended or not, Henry's reign greatly increased the role and authority of Parliament. That is not to say that Parliament was a thorn in Henry's side and that he was forced to take note of it. Parliament was largely a doormat. Henry never expected them to kick up a fuss, and when there was any indication that they might do so, he trod on Parliament pretty firmly. Nonetheless, every change was taken through Parliament for its approval, and in many cases there was really no need to do so. By the end of the reign, it was assumed that constitutional changes absolutely required Parliament to go through. This was no longer a body for the approval of taxation, the delivery of petitions and consultation, for Pollard, then, Henry was a man of courage. He had a deep relationship with the people of England and an astute identification with the real spirit of his people. He embodied the national will. Pollard also made the point that, yes, while Henry caused a lot of misery to a lot of people and tore up valued and loved institutions, yet England largely escaped, therefore, the religious wars and turmoil that the continent went through. 
Given the ocean of negativity we're about to come to, I'd like to emphasise this is a good point. Read a history of the religious wars of the 16th and 17th century on the continent, the misery of the Thirty Years' War, the desecration of Germany, and it might just adjust the perspective just a little bit. Good Whig that he was, Winnie made a similar assessment. He castigated Henry for the judicial murders of his reign, but essentially emphasised his reign as, quote, strengthening a popular monarchy while France and Germany were racked with internal strife. Elton's views then amended this somewhat in that he put Cromwell and Henry's ministers centre stage as the geniuses of reform rather than Henry himself, and his view of Henry would absolutely have seen him down at Tyburn if he'd been around during the reign itself, but essentially the story about the impact of Henry's reign in the 1950s was still a positive one. But the modern viewpoint is much more negative. Jack Scarry's book published his biography of Henry in 1968. The love of other historians for this book is really quite touching. Despite its age, it's still quoted as the best biography of Henry VIII available. Scarisbrook acknowledged Henry's confident and talent for display. He, quote, wore regality with a splendid conviction. But essentially, he saw him as easily led and emphasised the negative. Rarely, if ever, has the unawareness and irresponsibility of a king proved more costly of the material benefit of his people. L.B. Smith stressed the king's lack of consistency, and while arguing that Henry genuinely dominated both court and government, he also emphasised the negative. Here was a man totally egotistical, neurotic, given to great fits of temper and deep and dangerous suspicions, and at best with a limited intellect. John Guy concurred with that, describing Henry as, quote, a second-rate mind with what looks suspiciously like an inferiority complex. E.W. Ives is similarly negative. Henry VIII's monumental selfishness was disguised by highly effective propaganda, he wrote. The good that came from Henry's reign, such as that point about preventing religious conflict, was never in his mind and can't be credited to Henry. While meanwhile, he swindled his people with the basement of the currency, his obsession with his succession prompted a totally unnecessary break with Rome, he wasn't in control anyway, it was his ministers who did all the heavy lifting, and he threw away the chance for a long-lasting peace with Scotland. Amongst other things, I think it's fair to say that Professor Ives would not have put Henry Tudor on his Christmas card list. David Starkey gives Henry a bit more credit. He had many of the qualities of a born leader. He was intelligent, his memory was good, and his eye for detail sharp. He was a shrewd judge of men and had a flair for self-protection and propaganda. Moreover, he was both ruthless and selfish, while his staggering self-righteousness made him proof against doubts and the dark nights of the soul. Someone somewhere uses the phrase about Henry's demanding but remarkably flexible conscience. I've lost the quote, but I thought that was a good point. It's super tempting to view all the mathering about whether or not he'd committed a sin by marrying Catherine of Aragon as purely cynical. In fact, most historians seem to take his theological concerns, as far as this was concerned, very seriously. But his conscience does seem to drop handily into line with his wishes, as far as I can see. David Starkey, though, also goes for the two reigns approach. The young, athletic Renaissance prince, followed by the hulking tyrant of the later years. Here's something that gets dismissed by a number of historians, often with a whiff of contempt and superciliousness. Well, I rate the idea, I have to say. You try and be a good, rational person when racked daily with pain and an ulcerous leg, so enormously fat you need a winch to get you upstairs. I imagine it could have made him a little short-tempered, you might say.
The summary is that the modern historian has no stars in their eyes as far as Henry is concerned. They will argue about Henry's impact for good or ill, about the Reformation, the succession, his thirst for war, his impact in Ireland and Scotland, which tends to get less attention, a sin of which I shall try not to be guilty. But as a man, well, he doesn't get a good press anymore. Let's just put it that way. There's a portrait made right at the end of his reign by a chap called Cornelis Metzis. Seriously, your lad Cornelis clearly had no great sense of self-preservation because it is not good. Not good, ladies and gentlemen, at all. If I'd been Henry, I wouldn't have paid the bill. The picture's on the website. Oh dear. But anyway, the picture seems to sum up the general opinion about the moral qualities of Henry of the later years, as far as historians are concerned. Do you know, there are so many opinions of Henry VIII, I could go on forever. But I'm not going to do that, because you lot have to get to work, so next time we'll put all of this to one side and we'll start afresh. We'll start with the young, dynamic, happy Henry, 17 years old, newly in possession of a kingdom and a bag of cash from Dad. But for this week, I'm going to leave you with the words of Sir Walter Raleigh. Yeah, that Walter Raleigh, which for me have great resonance. For how many servants did he advance in haste, and with the change of his fancy, ruined again? No man knowing for what offence. To how many others of more desert gave he abundant flowers from whence to gather honey, and in the end of harvest, burnt them in the hive. How many wives did he cut off and cast off as his fancy and affection changed? How many princes of the blood, whereof some of them for age could hardly crawl towards the block, did he execute? Next week, then, there is no History of England, but there is Episode 4 of the History of Scotland, and this week we've arrived at one of the most enigmatic of subjects, the arrival of the painted people, the Picts, a fascinating people. All you have to do to listen is become a member, and all you have to do to become a member is go to thehistoryofengland.com, sign up and pay the paltry fee. It's a doddle. Finally, do remember that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Nip along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and find out more. Thanks to all of you for listening and your comments and all of that, and hopefully see you next week. If not, then in two weeks' time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 